trans guys can still get pregnant and non-binary people can still get pregnant and they aren't women. So this issue, even if it predominantly affects women, affects other people too. You're listening to Roe and You, where we talk to people on campus about the impacts they're feeling and the resources they're using following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I'm your host, Crystal Fratton. In today's episode, we focus on our LGBTQ community here at the University of Utah. My colleague, Whit Fuller, talked to members of the queer community about the impact of the Supreme Court's decision. I'm agender. I use all pronouns. I am bi, on the A spectrum, and trans. I identify as lesbian and unlabeled for my gender identity. When asked about their reactions to the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and drafts leaked on the matter, students felt fear and anger. That anger for many of them became a call to action to lean on other members of the queer community who are no strangers to fighting for human rights and access to resources. So when I heard it, I was in the middle of doing an assignment for one of my classes, which At the time, we were actually learning about ways that women had historically been oppressed. And having that news drop at the same time as I was working on that assignment and already in in a bit of an emotionally volatile state, it was not fun. The ground felt like it was shaking underneath me. I was so angry and frustrated and hurting, and I knew that something needed to be done, but I didn't even know what could be done. My initial reaction was just fear. I know, I'm pretty sure most people's reaction was that. You know, I'm I'm a 20-something person with a uterus, and I'm like, this could very much affect me. I know personally that, like, while I can physically get pregnant, I don't ever want to because of other health complications that I have. And I'm like, if I ever end up getting pregnant now, it's going to be so much more of a hassle. It was honestly like some of the worst time of my life. I was like, this is going to be so bad for me. I was pretty terrified. So at the end of 2021, I made a 2022 bingo board. And one of the things on there was more abortion bans. And I really wish I didn't have to mark that off. So that was one of the first things I thought of. But I was very terrified and upset and just like I didn't know how to react. I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about my reaction when it first, like when it was overturned. I just remember being so angry. I definitely went through the grieving process a lot during that and anger was the biggest part of that. I remember myself feeling angry at my partner because I was like, you don't understand, even though they, do understand and are trying to help. But I think that was a really big thing for me is trying to overcome that anger and fear. And I think it was just so intense, like some of the most intense emotions I felt in a long time. 
For Emma, a transfer student to the University of Utah, she was still attending BYU at the time of the overturn going into effect. That came with its own set of challenges and changes in campus environments surrounding discourse on abortion access and Roe v. Wade. It's been hard, mostly because when it was overturned, I was actually down at BYU. And so there wasn't a whole lot that I could do there. There wasn't a whole lot of community there that I was tapped into, especially as a transgender queer woman. I recently transferred up here to the University of Utah, and here is where I've started to find community and like started to get integrated into the LGBTQ Resource Center and the Women's Resource Center and started to be able to have conversations with people. But beyond that, I've felt mostly like I've been isolated, like there hasn't been a lot that I can do and a lot of people that I can even talk to about these things. Well, I mean, here it's like there are resources. There is conversation. Like at BYU, it just never even came up. And when it did come up, when someone did try to talk about these things, it was always sort of politely shuffled to the side to focus on other things or to frame it in a context more LDS church-centered in line with their narrative. And so the difference is that there's actually a conversation here, that there's actually people talking about this as if it is a problem because it is a problem. Another problem with abortion rights discourse in the wake of Roe v. Wade's overturn comes in the form of skewed language and resources that fail to include transgender, queer, and gender nonconforming people in the discussion. The easiest response is to point out that trans guys can still get pregnant and non-binary people can still get pregnant and they aren't women. So this issue, even if it predominantly affects women, affects other people too. And even beyond the material consequences that we're seeing, it's also a fundamental human rights issue. It's about bodily autonomy. It's about who gets to make decisions about our bodies and uh, having those start to be rolled back a bit as a person who is currently making access to trans-affirming health care. Like, if that gets cut off for similar reasons, different rhetoric, it likely won't be, oh, think of the unborn children, but it will definitely be, and we've been seeing this, oh, think of the young kids doing this, and we need to make these decisions to protect them. And so once you start seeing the government, well, start, when the government continues to make decisions which affect people's bodily autonomy, that affects more than just women. And that's something that I wish was talked about more in the discourse. Fears surrounding the repeal of other human rights is a concern felt by trans and queer folks because, as Emma notes here, gender-affirming health care, such as puberty blockers, are currently being cited as a threat to young adults and children due to controversial effects. Regardless of age, the weaponization and removal of resources points to further human rights issues for queer and transgender people, if they are recognized as being affected in the discourse at all. The other week I was doing a paper about birth control rights, and every single source I looked at referred to the people that are in need of birth control as women, and while that might be true, that is not the only kinds of people that 
need access to that sort of thing. So it was just really interesting. Same thing when I did a paper on abortion last year, actually before Roe v. Wade got overturned. All of the documents I read were only referring to those people as women. And as somebody with a uterus who does not identify as a woman, that is just a little bit painful, I guess. I think we definitely need to reevaluate our language and reevaluate how we speak about this. While issues concerning reproductive rights and abortion access often fail to highlight or even recognize the lived experiences of queer and trans people, some resources, such as Planned Parenthood, Counseling Centers on Campus, the LGBT Resource Center, and the Women's Resource Center, have started to make a conscious effort to normalize the use of preferred names in addition to legal names, and have started asking people for their pronouns. I've been to Planned Parenthood, and they're usually good at, like, you know, they'll they'll ask for your legal name and stuff, but they'll also ask for your preferred name and pronouns and stuff, so they're usually really good about that. Other than that, I don't really know of any resources with specifically trans people in mind, which kind of sucks. But I definitely think there should be base for queer people in this, especially because it really affects our community, and especially, like, trans people and abortion rights. I've definitely seen, like, since the leak and the overturning, I've seen a lot of queer voices talking about it, and I definitely feel like there should be more. Queer voices aren't absent from the issue, though. Historically, queer voices haven't been absent from many human rights issues. Queer people stood up during the civil rights movement. A Latina trans woman threw the first bottle during the Stonewall riots for LGBTQ rights. Queer people generally have a history of standing up for other communities in times of need. Even if it's not necessarily queer people being affected by this, I think there's a big voice of support from the queer community. It reminds me of during like the civil rights movement, even like white women that had felt, I don't know, like discrimination for their identities were willing to step up and help because I think we know what it feels like to be discriminated against. So it's very easy for us to feel that empathy and show support. And I think anyone who is supportive should be able to have a voice in this. Lauren, a lesbian person labeled as female at birth, described additional fears they experienced surrounding their partner who was assigned male at birth in the wake of the overturn. They also pointed to fears of losing other human rights affecting the queer community, such as marriage equality and access to gender-affirming health care. I'm dating somebody who was assigned male at birth and I was assigned female at birth, so that's a little terrifying, especially living in an area where the right to an abortion is not protected. I know a lot of other queer people kind of feel the same way and know people who are at risk for that. And definitely, I feel like there's a lot of rumors about this is just the beginning and that they might look at more things surrounding like gay marriage and gender identity and healthcare and all sorts of things like that. And it's really scary for the future just because so many people are losing rights. Emma voices similar concerns. At the end of her thought, she urges a call to action and a united stance to avoid seeing human rights that others have been fighting for disappear. I mean, 
the biggest thing is that it shows that these rights, which people fought for so long for, can be taken away pretty much just on the whim of a whole bunch of unaccountable old white people. And as someone who is in a community that is also currently facing a whole lot of negativity, especially in the political process, that's really scary because while I do not have a uterus, this is it feels like a sign of how things could go if we don't stand together, if these processes continue, that they can take away the rights that we and people before us have fought so long and hard for. I think it's insane to me that like nine people get to make this decision for everybody. I think it's not a good representation of citizens of the United States and anybody living in the United States. I'm pretty sure there were studies done that said that the majority of people were disappointed and did not support the overturning. So I think, yeah, I just think it's crazy that we're letting literally nine people decide what everyone's allowed to do with their bodies. The discourse isn't all bleak divisions and losses, though. It brings communities together and starts conversations about difficult topics. It also invites calls to action for those who want to participate in more focused activism and a safe space for those who need to feel understood and in like-minded spaces more than anything right now. I definitely had quite a few people in community that I feel very connected to because I think everybody was just so outraged and I think having a community that we are all fighting for the rights of people with uteruses. We are all like connected in doing so, even if it doesn't directly affect some of those people who I'm fighting with. So I feel like being able to seek out that community and have those people around me that are pushing towards the same goal is super important and it's definitely made me want to like reach out more and meet more people in the kind of queer realm. Chip offered perhaps the most simple and touching bit of advice. Listening to people who are affected by the overturn or grappling with its effects is the most important way to show support. Being available to talk to people has been the biggest thing. Like, you know, obviously you can't be available for everyone all the time because that's just way too much emotional work for anyone to take on. But, you know, being being around for friends and neighbors and other people in your community, that's really like the most important thing, being able to listen. That's, I think, the most important thing, just to be able to listen and talk about things. The University of Utah's own LGBTQ students advocate for expansive language, including people across genders and sexualities, and an inclusive view of bodies affected by abortion access. Most importantly, they ask two things of everyone, to stand united in the discourse and to listen when someone needs to be heard. Inclusive language that avoids using the broad misnomer women around this topic appears to be the first imperative ask from our LGBT community. To include trans folks who are also undoubtedly affected by the overturning of Roe, a slight tweak in vocabulary can make a big difference. AFAB, the acronym for Assigned Female at Birth, 
or even simply saying people with a uterus, show solidarity with the LGBT community. It avoids the misconception that they don't share the same struggles in a country where the highest court is taking bodily autonomy rights away from its citizens. It invites them to the conversation and political action. But beyond inclusive language and legal abortion, reproductive justice casts a much wider net. In addition to bodily autonomy, RJ is about the economic viability to raise a child access to good schools, nutritious food, and a safe and healthy community for children to grow up in. As we continue to check the pulse on queer impacts, my colleague Andrew Lores interviewed a former intern at the LGBT Resource Center and a student majoring in gender studies. My name is Kate Lunnan. Um, I was the gala intern at the LGBT Resource Center. My pronouns are she, they. Alright, and I'm Luxani Reem. I'm just a gender studies major here at the U, and my pronouns are they, they. The overturning of Roe v. Wade has obviously affected a lot of people. Do you think people are talking about how it's affecting LGBTQ members, or do you think that's a conversation that has been sort of swept under the rug? You know, I've seen this conversation happening in queer spaces mm -hmm. and in some academic spaces that frequently talk about queer issues and queer theory. But I think in the main pro-choice movement, like in the rallies, things like that, I haven't seen it come up as much. I haven't really heard any sort of significant conversation around how it affects LGBTQ I plus um, youth and young adults and and folks in general and especially in the language used you know I think it's really frequent to be talking about women women's bodies females that sort of thing and not a lot of inclusive language you know like AFAB uh, assigned female at birth or um, people's bodies people who have uteruses things like that because a lot of it can exclude trans men and non-binary folks um, who are affected by it. And do you think it's because a lot of people aren't educated on that or is there an issue that, you know? Because with the, I mean, a lot more people are getting better, but there's still a huge issue because you do see, like you said at the protest, you see a lot of different language and words used that's not inclusive. You know, I hesitate to say it's a lack of education. I, I do think that people know that trans men exist. I do think people know that non-binary folks exist. I think people know that intersex folks exist as well. I think that for so many people, these issues aren't at the forefront of their mind. They don't have to think about it daily, like how a trans man has to think about his uterus daily or how a gender non-conforming presenting person like myself has to think about how other people view me and what other people think about me. You know, these issues are at the forefront of my mind, so I'm constantly thinking about this inclusive language because it's what I want other people to think about. 
but I think for other folks, for people who are cis, they don't necessarily have, they, they have this luxury, they have this privilege of not having to think about it. And I think that the more that we can make this issue personal for the cis people in the pro-choice movement, then the easier and the more natural it will be for them to include trans folks, non-binary folks, intersex folks into the conversation. And do you feel like in these spaces such as the protests and the conversations do you feel like lgbtq plus people have been given a voice to talk or no i've gone to one rally for it mm -hmm. um yeah i did hear from like a trans man did speak about it but there were a lot more cis women speaking about it and mm -hmm. there were definitely like i can't judge the audience those there because i don't know them but mm -hmm. i would say that it was pretty intermixed for sure but i don't know it would be nice to see more of that representation at rallies and everything um and so they're doing better than like they have historically but they could do more. <laughs> they could do, yeah. There's room for improvement. And another thing to consider is also like who has the ability to come to these rallies and who has the ability to be out and outspoken in these types of situations. You know, when you look at the pro-choice movement, a lot of it is cis white women. And that's because trans folks, particularly trans folks of color, black women of color, black men of color have traditionally faced a lot more opposition and threat of violence or persecution in some way for being out, for being outspoken as well you know we ask about oh like we want more representation or why aren't we seeing these people at our rallies and things like that we have to consider you know who are we asking about availability for the rallies like how are we promoting the rallies um who's who's making the decisions about where the rallies happen and at what time they're occurring and you know how are we doing outreach to those communities like the queer communities and um our communities of color to like make sure that they're represented because really the people that are going to deal with the most repercussions with the overturning of Roe v. Wade are those who already have the least access and are already more vulnerable. My next question was going to be to ask how do we make these rallies more inclusive? Yeah, I, I, as a follow-up to that, you know, making sure that we have a diverse group of people making the decisions and part of the planning process. And it's not that there aren't trans people that would be interested in helping with these rallies. It might be that they don't know about it. It might be that they are working full-time and, you know, need a little bit more flexibility or, you know, things like that. And I'm not a rally organizer or anything like that, but I think that the, the wider our net is, like the more willing we are to accept criticism and different ideas and different planning procedures and processes, the better it, we are at, the better we're going to be at getting more people to come and to attend and things like that. But it's also not just about the rallies, you know, there's all this hype around going to the capitol and and waving your sign and that's great and all it's good to have that community but there are many many people who will never be able to make it to the rally because of work or because of children you know any type of situation and so it's not just about that you know there's a great platform on social media where people can get connected um and even further you know there there's more like smaller events like throughout the year things like that and just Having conversations, you know, like how we're having right now is a great way to get involved in the movement. So I think 
the less we make it about, you know, you have to be at the rally to be a part of this movement or to be a part of this resistance, that's going to ostracize a lot of people who aren't able to make it or who weren't told about it or it, it didn't reach them, you know. We need to be inclusive of people participating in whatever way that they're able to participate, including people who are incarcerated, for instance, people who are extremely vulnerable to these new types of legislation that's going to restrict their access because anything that's restricted for us is going to be restricted tenfold for people who are incarcerated and not in control of any of their decisions. So how do we include them in the conversation? and not including these requirements to, to show up and, and be in person. The great thing about the pandemic is we have many ways of connecting with our community. And as long as we don't restrict ourselves, really the, the sky's the limit. And for a little bit of a basic question, just to give an overview, how is the overturning of Roe v. Wade affecting LGBTQ plus community members? I would say it would affect them in the same way it would affect any cis or straight woman. It's just that they have less access because they are queer. And because they are queer, they have a lot of other shit to deal with. And so that restricts their access. And if they did have better access, it would be the same. Do you think even if they got the access that there's still sort of a, a public persecution, just fear that you would have like if a trans man did have the access do you think he would still use it or be too scared to use it just because of the public perception i'm not sure about that but at least knowing that the access is available yeah would be good yeah. but especially here in utah it's hard to be out any like especially anywhere outside of salt lake city it's hard to, even harder to get access outside of Salt Lake City to yeah. anything for queer people. And the thing about access is that there's so many different factors that go into someone being able to access healthcare in general, right? We have race, we have class, we have, you know, social economic standing, that type of thing. So, and the thing about the queer community is that they are everywhere in all of those different categories, all of those different identities. There are people who are white and queer and very wealthy and will still always have access to healthcare because of that wealth privilege, right? There's also queers who are white and who are living in poverty and will be greatly impacted by this, not just because of the stigma, but also because they don't have the financial means to access healthcare the way that wealthy people do. And then we have um, black queers, black trans queers as well, who will have an added difficulty accessing healthcare because of racial medical medicalization tactics, as well as the queer stigma. And then you factor in class and all of these different identities and the queer community is amongst all of them. So any identity or community that is going to be negatively affected by the overturning of Roe v. Wade, it's an added factor to add the stigma in of queerness and of for our LGBTQIA identifying folks. But then you also have to think about this beyond just accessing healthcare. Like this decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is a huge impact on the queer community because this is a step towards, uh, you know, legalizing a certain kind of body 
you know, adding regulations on a body. Anytime the government decides that they want to choose how people change their body or affect their body, things like that, they are defining what is right and what is wrong. And for the queer community, that's very scary, especially for trans folks, you know. It's no accident that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is happening in the midst of so many bills and so much legislation targeting trans girls in schools. It's all part of the same movement, the same idea that that we should allow countless white men to decide what makes a woman or what makes a girl or what makes a person for that matter and how they what they should do with that body that they have. Um, and and this is a long history of the government doing that to black women with forced sterilization and and constantly creating regulations that always make it easier for white women to have babies than for black women. So, you know, this greatly impacts the queer community because it's not only making it more difficult for them to access health care, but also adding on to this long history of the government trying to control AFAB bodies. And it makes us concerned for what the future is, like how do we continue to protect these rights that we've had for such a long time. And, you know, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, it sort of opens the door for the Supreme Court and other forms of government to go after some of these long-held rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also opens the door for the Supreme Court to go after Obergefell v. Hodges. Um, and that's been a very big fear in the queer community because if they can overturn one um, decision, what other ones can they overturn? Yeah, because I read about that Clarence Thomas, which is the guy who pushed the Roe v. Wade overturning, is now wanting to look back on other legislations and laws and overturn those because of quote-unquote mistakes we made during the process. And one of those was gay marriage was a big one. So do you think that Roe v. Wade being overturned is just another stepping stone? I'm saying stepping stone, but now it's really a step back mm -hmm. into going into other legislations that have been thought to be protected. But now we're in this scary world where it's not. I mean, I think anytime somebody hears a call to, to overturn gay marriage and also interracial marriage was the other case that was brought up by Clarence Thomas it's very concerning just yeah, the fact just, just the fact that you know there is somebody in this level of power position having not just talking about this but putting it in writing into an actual decision in the supreme court of course it gives pause of course it gives fear and i think that that fear and that worry is important because you know it's important for us to be aware of any type of aggression or any type of possible threat of attack that might come against our community or other communities that are a part of our movements and things like that. And so I think that's important. I think it's also important to recognize the many, many ways in which we can combat this and the many, many ways in which people are already doing this, um, particularly with how we're combating things uh, with abortion and with um, making sure that people can still have access to it regardless of the Supreme Court decision, fighting this in the courts and legally. I know the ACLU is like mounting cases against different laws that have been passed here in Utah specifically related to 
the trans girls in sports here in Utah and then also with the Utah abortion trigger laws, things like that. There are ways that we can combat it. But I do think that fear is, is universal and it is something that is hopefully driving people to build even more community and to keep aware of what is happening uh, in the legislature, both federally and in the state. So for people who think that there's nothing we can do about it, what can we do about it? I mean, obviously we're in, <laughs> right now as this is being recorded, we're just past the election day stuff mm -hmm. and voting. So obviously one of the main ones is to get out there and vote. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you can say that can reassure people? Yeah, bit? well, you're right, as we're recording this, we've just witnessed an absolute um, demolition of the quote-unquote red wave. Uh, the, the red tide, the red tsunami promised uh, turned out to be not much more than a ripple, really. We've, uh, Democrats have absolutely overperformed in almost every um, district and sector than, than what they were expected to perform. And abortion was on the ballot in, I want to say, five different states. And each time, abortion or reproductive rights in general, reproductive justice, triumphed. Um, whether it was voting down an oppressive um, amendment or whether it was supporting codifying Roe v. Wade into the state uh, constitution, it succeeded. So I really do think that there is hope because we are not alone. We might be three people in a room having this conversation now, but the thing is you have to remember there are hundreds of thousands of people all over the country and really the world having these conversations as well and thinking about what it means to be a woman, what it means to have a uterus, what it means to have true and equitable reproductive justice for everyone. And so I think the hope is, or I guess, the, the call to action is to build those community connections, to find people and to talk to people and have these conversations, not just with people that you know or people that you feel comfortable around, but with everybody that you can. Reaching out to diverse com communities and putting yourself out of your comfort zone when you're able to, to have these conversations with family members, classmates, professors even. I think that being here at a university is a great opportunity for that because we are able to use our academic study and knowledge to really further our own ability to articulate cases like this and to articulate our own feelings and opinions on this issue so that we can better share them and better listen to other people's articulations as well. And before going into the resource center itself, have you two had any experiences at the university where Roe v. Wade has come up, especially in queer spaces or around the queer community? I personally haven't besides like my project that I made, which mm -hmm. I shared with my like whole class, um, but specifically a small group of mm -hmm. people. But um, other than that, I haven't, but I'm also just, I'm a sophomore, it's my second year, and I'm just getting into like joining the community, so mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the conversations are becoming more widespread, and in some ways it's, it's 
good that we're meeting a little bit more as people become more comfortable in the pandemic situation to have meetings and conversations like this specifically in academic settings you know in the gender studies program this is a pretty common topic for us to look over like inequities in healthcare you know between men and women and for non-binary folks as well i'm in an intro to feminist theory course where we've talked a lot about the overturning of roe v wade and how it impacts many different groups of people but also looked at how even in a world where we had roe v wade how there were so many inequities on getting access to this and what communities were having difficulties with it so I do think the conversations are happening on campus. I can't speak for folks who are in STEM fields as well, but I have had some conversations here at the center with folks in STEM fields who wish that that conversation could escape like the humanities area and kind of get into our our conversations in science and technology and things like that because there are a lot of folks there who don't have this issue very prevalent in their minds so i think that that it could be more widespread across our university but i do think that what we're doing now is a really great start yeah and going back you brought up your painting actually Mm -hmm. and i'd like to include like a picture of it at least and show but what really inspired you to make something like that So our project was to create something that we felt a sense of urgency about. And the first two things that came to my mind were lesbians and Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to figure out how to put them together. And then one day, like, the idea for my painting just came to me. And it was the same day I met with my professor to talk about the project, because that was a required meeting. And... (laughs) After I talked about it with her, I knew that it was what I was doing for sure because it just felt right. And I feel like I did a pretty good job of including both of those topics. I think you did a pretty good job. (laughs) My introduction statement goes into further depth on it because a painting can only show so much. But, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think a lot of people in terms of the queer community are not talking about how it's also affecting lesbian people because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cases with the abortion stuff that include unconsensual and very wary topics that a lot of people don't like to talk about but you see on the news that there are a lot of cases where young women are attacked and they are basically forced to walk with this child that they never planned to have and people don't talk about lesbian people being attacked too because it's a conversation and something that happens. How do we incorporate um, lesbians into the language of and topic of abortion? I think the problem with talking about abortion and pro-choice is that a lot, a lot, a lot of it is focused on someone's ability to have a child. The fact that lesbians are still, many lesbians, not all lesbians, are able to give birth, right? But reproductive justice is so much more than just somebody getting pregnant and wanting an abortion. It's a much bigger conversation. Reproductive justice is about bodily autonomy, being able to control your body, being able to have better access to uh, hormonal controls, which we call birth control, Mm -hmm. but the vast majority of them are not even used for birth control. They're used to help with cramps or they're used to help with period pain. Many people take birth control. 
and for various reasons and yet we call it birth control when it's not for birth control and that's where so much of the conversation is lost on on many amab folks or just some men in general is that it, they're stuck in thinking that pro-choice is just about people not having babies and it's just about those situations in which someone has been assaulted which is a big issue it's definitely part of the movement but statistically those cases are not the most common cases of abortion it's it's really about people just having choice over their own body and really over their own future and reproductive justice isn't just that either it's also about giving people the choice to be able to raise a child and to raise a child safely and to do so in a world that has childcare access, that doesn't have so much food insecurity, that has good schools that are safe for children to attend. Reproductive justice includes all of that. It includes women having the right to make decisions about themselves medically, to not get a forced hysterectomy, to not be forcibly sterilized against their knowledge, which has happened for for decades, for centuries, to black women in the United States and women of color, it's still happening, you know, without their knowledge to incarcerated women as a form of birth control. So we miss out on a huge conversation when we focus our thoughts and our answers only on sexual assault and only on how this one specific member of the community may be affected. You know, there are lesbians out there who have been assaulted, who wanted an abortion. But really what, what we should be focusing our conversation on is reproductive justice as a whole, the wide range of issues that it encompasses and how we can you know, really center the conversation around that so we can get um, better access and better resources and research done on the things that we're asking for rather than going back and forth debating on abortion as a singular issue. It, it goes so much wider than that and so much further than that. Where do you think that specifically cis men and queer community members where people think that it doesn't directly affect them, where do they fit in the conversation of supporting others that need that support? Cis men that need to support mm. women mm -hmm. who are affected, obviously, but just how do they help? I think cis men any any cis man or any person who believes that the issue of reproductive justice doesn't affect them probably is feeling that way because they choose to feel that way because they choose to not let it affect them and that's a privilege that's a privilege like how many you know people choose to say that they're not affected by climate change that's because of where you live that's because of your wealth that's because you live on the east side of salt lake maybe and not the west side right and i think that with reproductive justice you know every cis man out there knows an afab person knows somebody that is affected by birth control by um by an abortion i mean how many women the statistic for women having abortions, I, it's like one in four women have had an abortion. 25%. I mean, if you're in a class of, you know, 100 people and they're all AFAB, 25 of them have had an abortion or will have an abortion at some point in their life. That's an insane statistic. So anybody saying that the issue doesn't affect them is either choosing not to let it affect them or is completely oblivious. And I think what they need to do is, if you think it doesn't affect you, it's okay. Because... As of right now, it hasn't maybe inconvenienced you that you know of, but ask your sister, 
ask your mother, ask your brother, ask them, when was it that you realized that reproductive justice was important to you? Or when was it, if it, if it is important to you, or when was it that you were first intruded upon by a cis man, by a man, by, by anybody, right? When was it that you realized that you didn't have full control over your body? Ask them about their period. What is it like to get cramps every single month? And, you know, what are the side effects of birth control? Being on the pill. So especially cis men who have partners who are AFAB, it's it's really, really important that they connect with the people that they love and be empathetic and make it a personal issue for them. Because when you make it a personal issue to you, when somebody you love, you realize they're being hurt by this, that's when you can become an activist. That's when you can become somebody who can be a voice for the community and to help uplift the voices of the community towards change. So not only connect with others, but to educate yourself. So education is super important for people. I would say education is very important, yes. I, I want to say that I don't want to overwhelm anybody because educating someone, you will never, if you are, you know, somebody who has never identified as a woman or presented as a woman or ever in your life, it is not really doable to educate you on what that experience is like, about what it's like to be in that space and to hold that identity even for a period of time, even if that's not the identity you hold now. That's why I say to, to not depend on the women in your life to educate you, but to make it personal for you to ask them questions about about their experience if they're comfortable answering so that maybe they can feel a little bit heard you know and making sure that they know that you understand that this is a really difficult issue and that this is something that's prevalent in their lives you know for cis men in relationships not assuming that your partner is going to want to go on the pill that your partner is going to want to get an iud and not just making your partner do the research on what the effects of those birth control methods are, but doing the research yourself, doing it together as a couple and understanding what the pros and the cons for each option is. And being the one who does have education on those issues, but also not thinking that you know everything about those issues as well, you know, leaving space for it to be a conversation between both of you. I think is really important. And how has Roe v. Wade being overturned affect the LGBTQ Resource Center here at the U specifically? Has it had any effect? Has it impacted the Resource Center at all? Brought in more voices coming to talk? I mean, the Resource Center is, as it always is, a place for people to come in and express their emotions, express what they're thinking about, how they've been affected with, with all sorts of different issues in the community and a place for people to just talk to other folks who may have a similar experience and also to have fun. Like we have a lot of different activities, a lot of different um, events and, and spaces like that for community members. So I wouldn't say that there's been a marked effect of the overturning happening here other than that people are having conversations about it in our space and I'm very proud of that I'm proud that our space is one of the spaces on campus in which 
people are having these conversations, as well as our queer and trans students of color meetings has also been a space where they've been able to speak on these issues as well. And I think that, that the center as a whole is facilitating activities where these conversations can, can happen even if it's not something that we are specifically doing programming on. But yeah, and I think that's important. Yeah, and does the Resource Center have any plans for the future when it comes to Roe v. Wade being overturned or just focus on what we're doing right now? You know, like I said, I am a former staff member and mm-hmm. my role with the center was specifically as an intern who planned the gala, our annual fundraiser. Yeah. So. I'm not actually part of the planning for future events. We do have Trans Day of Remembrance that's coming up that we'll be having an event slash vigil for Trans Day of Remembrance slash Trans Day of Resilience, which again is a part of the reproductive justice conversation because much of the violence against trans folks is against trans women who, even if they aren't impacted, depending on where they are at, they may or may not be impacted by issues such as abortion, but are impacted in those holistic issues of reproductive justice that I was talking about earlier. But I don't know of any events specifically talking about pro-choice as the headliner. And lastly, obviously this includes the Resource Center, but do you have any offerings of where where people can go for somewhat reassurance on the Roe v. Wade and what they can do to further improve and help Mm. fix this whole thing. For questions about access and things like that, if they're looking to access medical care, it'd be great to reach out to Planned Parenthood if they have any questions about what is still legal and what is still allowed. Uh, Planned Parenthood would be able to answer those questions and provide help and assistance. We still provide some contraceptive and safe sex materials here in our space. The Fuji Pantry offers those as well as if they're looking for somewhere on campus to have these questions. Uh, The Student Wellness Center has a lot of information on what students are able to access healthcare-wise. If they're looking for a space to find community and to simply talk about these issues or vent about these issues, Again, our center, the Women's Resource Center, is a good space to go to. Um, The Center for Equity and Student Belonging could be a possible space. There's also plenty of events and student organizations on campus that this might be a prevalent issue towards. And it's also something that they could bring up to their ASUU representatives. I'm actually the the senator for the College of for Cultural and Social Transformation. And this is a topic that ASUU is talking about, different ways that we can support our students. And so bringing this up to a possible representative could be a way to get more things happening on campus. It was ASUU that actually got all of the free period products into the bathrooms this past year. Um, That was a bill that was done through ASUU and that funding. So that is another possible uh, mode of change here on campus but really it's just trying to connect with people one by one friends co-workers classmates as well listening and connecting sounds pretty basic doesn't it but it's a vital step to support people affected by abortion bans it is vital to listen in order to organize collective action and effect change The criminalization of abortion and reproductive justice more broadly impacts everybody's life, even those without a uterus. While finishing this episode, the Senate passed a bill protecting same-sex marriage with bipartisan support. 
It is expected to pass when sent back to the House and will then be sent to President Biden to sign. This means same-sex marriage will be protected even if the Supreme Court revisits Obergefell, as Justice Clarence Thomas hinted at in the Dobbs decision this summer. Following the fall of Roe v. Wade this year, the Senate has failed to pass similar bills that would codify the right to an abortion and ensure access to contraception. That's our show. I'm your host, Crystal Froughton. On behalf of myself, Whit Fuller, and Andrew Lores, thank you for listening to Roe and You.